Father, that the words that flow from my lips would be from you. We thank you and praise you again, Father, for your word. And we ask, Lord, that our heart will be tender to you and to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Most of you know that I'm a twin. My twin brother, Roger, was born three minutes before me. And as little boys, he always reminded me that he was older than me. He actually weighed two ounces more than me at birth. He continued, as every year we compared ourselves and people compared us, he was taller. And it seemed that every year, you know, I wanted to catch up with Roger in height and in weight, but it didn't happen. I never caught up. But I remember the, the fun that we had and the frustration that I had at times because I didn't grow and beyond him. I hear homes for their small kids and, and somewhere in homes, oftentimes, maybe it's a, a closet, a door jam, there's a measuring stick. And kids' heights are marked. And every year they look excited to see how much they've grown. Can you imagine, though, how shocked parents might be if one year, instead of growing up, their kids grow down? It's normal for people 60 and 70 to begin to lose some height, but not kids, right? First thing would happen is they would rush to get an appointment to see the doctor because it's just not normal to not grow for children. As we look at the book of Hebrews this morning, the Hebrew Christians had grown down. They had grown down in their Christian walk and not up. And the author of Hebrews tells us, or rather tells them to grow up. He tells them that they need milk instead of solid food. They're like babies in diapers needing milk instead of solid food. Can you imagine today if some of the teenagers and young adults went downstairs, instead of getting their coffee or the juices, there were some baby bottles with milk. And they went down and they grabbed a baby bottle and started sucking on it and getting milk and maybe went over and Gerber's uh, mashed bananas and began to eat baby food. We'd say, something's wrong there. Something's not right. You see, the writer of Hebrews is telling these people that something is wrong. They needed someone to teach them the ABCs of Christian life all over again. And the author says that he, he wants to teach them more about Jesus Christ and his being in the order of Melchizedek, but he fears that it's over their heads. And so he confronts their immaturity and issues a strong warning. He tells them, grow up. They must move on beyond the basics of Christian faith. Their lives must change. Just as we as adults don't wear diapers, we don't drink milk from a baby bottle, we don't eat baby food, 
Christians' lives must demonstrate growth. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And we read about this. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We see in this passage two images that describe the immaturity of the congregation there. One is teaching, and two is food. It says that they ought to be taught the ABCs of Christianity all over again. They should be teachers. They should be teachers. But they need someone to teach them the basics. He describes them as being dull of hearing. Other uh, translations might use the word like lazy or slow to learn or negligent. But it's not slow to learn in the sense of sometimes we have people in our class maybe. Uh, I, I, my wife, Chris, teaches first grade. And, and, and sometimes there are kids who they want to learn and, and they desire to learn, but, they, but it's just it's hard for them to be able to grasp and to understand. This is not what the, the author of Hebrews is saying. He, he's saying they're dull of hearing because <laughs> they have this attitude of, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I think maybe they were like some of us when we were on an airplane. And you know how the, the lady or man steps up and tells us what to do in case of, of, uh, of danger or safety issues. What do we do? Our mindset is, I know all that. I know all that. I don't have to listen to this. I've heard it over and over. And that's kind of how these people were. They're like, they were so smart and so smug. And when they heard the word of God, they didn't listen. They didn't understand. And they didn't know the truth at times. So first, with this thing of teaching. Secondly, second image is the milk instead of the solid food. Feeding them would be like feeding a baby. Now, Zach and Jared, they're grown, they're young men now. And I didn't ask them about this, but I can remember when they were little kids and they didn't want to eat, I'd grab a spoon and put some baby food in it and I'd act like it was an airplane. And I'd say, okay, Zach, okay, Jared, here's some food, you know, and it worked. They ate the food. And this is what seems to be the case of these Hebrews. They, they were being spoon-fed, spoon-fed the word of God but we can't live on milk we need solid food they were talking baby talk they, they were not seeking the kingdom of God they were not trying to encourage others they needed more than a refresher course they needed the foundations of faith taught to them again 
In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the author gives them a pathway, a, a, a way toward maturity. And let's read that. Therefore, he says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We see three couplets here, six items, these elementary principles that we that they needed to leave behind. And he tells his listeners they need to move on from foundational things. And, and, and I believe as I studied God's Word, or studied rather the, the, the scholars who looked at God's Word, I believe, and most scholarship would say that these six items were mentioned as a part of an early church catechism. Um, they wanted to make sure as these Jewish believers came into the body of Christ and taught God's Word, they wanted them, wanted them to, to know the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament beliefs that were, were taught by the Pharisees, truths of the Old Covenant, need to be understood as being shadows pointing toward the real thing in Jesus Christ. It says, that you move from repentance, from dead works, to faith in God. I believe it's turning from dead works of Judaism, attempting to keep the law, to be able to save yourself by doing good works, doing rituals that are empty. New Testament, of course, says repentance is toward Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name than Jesus Christ under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they had to teach him that. Next section was instructions about cleansing riots and, and the laying on of hands. In every home, every Jewish home back then had a basin with water in it by the entrance for families and for visitors to use for ceremonial cleanings. And there were a lot of cleansings that they had to go through. And it was from these types of things they were to abandon and to forget. Ezekiel 36, 25 predicted this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. You see, the old washings were many. The old washings were symbolic of a cleansing by the Spirit of God as we are born again. The old washings were temporary. The new washing was one time, spiritual, real, permanent. Titus 3, 5 says that he saved us not because of righteous works that we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit. To look at the second part of that, laying on of the hands, one who brought an Old Testament sacrifice 
had to put their hands on the animal to identify with it. Leviticus 1.4 says that he was to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it should be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Final two items are, were resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. In the Old Testament, the resurrection is not talked about a, a whole lot. Uh, there was taught that there was life after death, there was reward for being good, and there was punishment for being wicked, but not really a whole lot. It wasn't super clear about what the resurrection was. In New Testament, we see Jesus Christ saying, I am the resurrection and life. And we began to see more and more of what the resurrection is all about. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, says that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. But Romans 1 says there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we see the church needed to teach these new converts the difference between Judaism and life in Christ Jesus. And they were trained by using the fabrics of their, their old religion as a springboard. Again, these Old Testament beliefs, these, these old uh, covenant truths, need to be understood as being shadows of the real thing in Christ Jesus. Well, the writer of Hebrews was encouraging the congregation to move on beyond the basics to Jesus Christ and to the new covenant. And in verse 3, he reminds them that maturity comes from God. Verse 3 says, this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. And this reminds us that, that again, that it's God who does the work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Leviticus 20, verses 78 says the same thing. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord who makes you holy. I am the Lord who makes you holy. We will look at this congregation in the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit different because they were trying to move on from Judaism do you have that problem that they had? Are you stuck? Not in Judaism, but you've been coming here for a long time. Are you a member of Good News? Are you involved? Do you need to be spoon-fed? Do you share the gospel with others and come alongside them and encourage them? Are you better off today spiritually than you were four years ago? Do you know God better than you did four years ago? Do you love God more than you loved God four years ago? Is there someone here today who was raised in the church? They know the gospel. You know the gospel. But you never put your faith in Jesus Christ, in him alone. Are there changes in your life that you would like to make? Verse 14, the author says, 
that mature are trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Think about it. Trained by constant practice. Now, for years, Chris and I had some exercise machines in our house. And they sat there. They were good coat racks. <laughs> they did us no good. You see, just having an exercise machine in your house doesn't mean that you're going to get toned up. It doesn't mean you're going to lose some weight. And it doesn't mean that your heart rate is going to be better. It takes exercise. It takes exercise. We can have all the books. We can have all the charts. We can have all these things that I'll access, all these resources. But if we're not studying God's Word and taking it in, there's no value. There's no value. You see, we grow and mature as we discipline ourselves, as we train ourselves. Have you ever watched someone, maybe they're using a calculator, they never look up, maybe you're checking out something. Or maybe you watch someone who's typing at a, at a computer and they, they never look up. It's because they know that keyboard. They know it. They've trained over and over and they know it. This morning we were blessed to have a team of musicians here. And they practiced together, typically on Wednesdays. But you know what? I have no doubt that most of them practice at home also. And I know that often they practice a long time. You see, to be good at being a musician, you have to discipline yourself. You have to practice. Someone has said that laziness and ignorance sleep in the same bed. Laziness and ignorance sleep in the same bed. Lazy Christians are ignorant Christians. If we're going to make changes in our lives, it's going to take discipline. Again, verse 14 says that those who discipline themselves are able to know the difference between good and evil. Are you willing to train yourself? Are you willing to discipline yourself? To study God's Word? To think biblically? To interact with others? Maybe be in an accountability relationship? I, I, I see more and more today that mindset where good and bad or good and evil kind of become fuzzy. I've talked with people and they said, you know, abortion, I'm not really too worried about that. And sexual sin, it's different today. It's different. We can't have attitudes like that. You see, because God's Word, if we study it, if we're disciplined, right and wrong are very clear. They're not fuzzy. They're not fuzzy. So we go through life and we have to make decisions. Sometimes we make decisions quickly. And we need to know. We need to be able to discern right from wrong. And contrary to what the culture says today, 
there's not a truth for everyone. There is the truth. And God's word divides that for us. We are able to know the truth if we train ourselves by constant practice. <clears throat> well, even with their excellent catechism for building the foundation of faith, there were problems in this church, written, the book written of Hebrews. Some, despite their training, had hardened their hearts. They'd never gone beyond the elementary principles and teachings. Some seemed to be stillborn. Others were slipping back toward Judaism because of persecution. You know, it's easier to, to live in a culture where Judaism was accepted versus Christianity because homes were being destroyed and jobs were not available and, and various other things when you think about persecution. And for a church, it's easier to see a pagan fall away and to, to notice it than it might be to recognize a Jewish person coming from that background. Roughly confronting the congregation with its spiritual immaturity and providing a way toward maturity through training, the author of Hebrews moves on and gives a, a terrifying warning in the New Testament. He warns them that for some that there can be no second beginnings. He warns really of spiritual apostasy. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Hebrews 4 through 8. And, and before I read this, there are so many thorny interpretive matters in this passage. Some have already just gone through, but here a lot. And some of the words are very ambiguous and very general. And I've tried to look at the passage, see what Scripture says in the context as well as what the Scripture says in general. Let's look, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God <clears throat> to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. In verse 7, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it, bears, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This passage raises a lot of questions. Questions, again, that scholars and theologians disagree on. One of the commentators and one of the commentators was saying that he was on a, on a plane flight headed to a New Testament uh, conference. All four of these people were New Testament scholars. And they were not arguing, they were discussing Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Again, scholars, there were three different views out of the four. So we see the difficulty sometimes 
And we'll look at those three that they went through, which I think are the three major ones. But what is the danger? Is this lostness and condemnation, or is it loss of rewards, or is it something else? And what brings this danger to pass? In other words, is there something that you and I need to know to either do or not do? And if this happens to a person, were they ever really born again? Were they adopted into God's family? Were they sealed by the Holy Spirit? And, and should we, who were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, reconciled to God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, should we apply this warning to us? Think about the author of Hebrews, if you will. You can tell as you read through this book, he has a heart. He is a shepherd. And he, yes, several times he has to give them warnings that are tough and hard. But all the time you see that, that shepherd heart, that just, he, he longs to make sure that they all know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they've all come to saving faith in Jesus. But that heart, he can see people whose lives show patterns of walking with God. There's fruit in their lives. And then maybe he sees some that their pattern, there's no fruit. And maybe he's seen some that when they heard the gospel, they, they got excited. But soon, they dropped by the wayside. And he gives these warnings. You see, the writer of Hebrews was not omniscient. Yes, he was inspired by the Spirit of God. But as he wrote to these people, he didn't have insight into their hearts. And so he writes and gives them warnings that, that are scary, that are terrible in a sense. Well, that first question is, <clears throat> well, the danger is that separation from God forever. And I believe that it is a final, fiery curse of hell. And we see this illustration, or illustrated rather, in verses 7 and 8, where they had those two pieces of property. And, and, and the first piece received the rain like the second did. And in due time, the first plot of land produced a crop that the people could use, that owned it, and it was blessed. The second plot of land received the rain, the, the, the blessings, but it produced thorns and thistles. And it says that it was described as worthless and near being near cursed and its end to be burned. And these two fields represent two types of people. People whose lives are fruitful and people whose lives are fruitless. Three words, I think, point toward that final condemnation. It says the fruitless field was worthless. 
it was about to be cursed and this end was burning Listen, worthless curse destined for burning this language of a final condemnation second question was what brings this danger about what this 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 apostasy what brings it about what does falling away mean it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were enlightened and who shared and who tasted and who then turn away from god the context tells us that it's more than just a simple change of mind what's involved in this is first is a life that is fruitless and after receiving god's goodness and blessings year after year they have not produced fruit and another warning passage in hebrews chapter 12 i believe it is says that they they have failed to pursue holiness and will not see the lord it says make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness no one will see the lord this decision to fall away is a decisive decision it's a decision to separate from backsliding if you want to use that term it's a calculated it's a decisive it's a irrevocable decision and the issue is not primarily doctrinal although that's very important it is practical and, and, and when i think about doctrine I, I i can think over the years how my as i've studied god's word and been under different professors my my views on different minor doctrines have changed now when i was a little kid i was baptized by being sprinkled Spr sprinkling i believe is not the most accurate way but there are many many churches who do that if i changed my my belief system on baptism as far as sprinkling and being immersed i wouldn't be in danger of apostasy but it's when we start drifting and when our hearts become hard we make decisions again this is not a person who has chosen um who has rather who has walked with god who has loved God, who has sought to live for him, who falls into sin. It could be sexual sin. It could be financial issues. It could be bitterness and anger that has not been dealt with. But that's not apostasy. It's a deliberate decision to walk away from God's word. Third question. If this happens, was this individual ever born again? Was he adopted into God's family? Was he sealed by the Holy Spirit? Was he saved? Was he saved? Was she? And my answer, I believe, is no. But I want to give you the three views I mentioned earlier. The first view was that these were genuine Christians who fell away and they lost their salvation. And this is a view of, of, of Armenian Christians who believe that one can lose their salvation. This passage is a key 
text for them, but it's probably not the best text for them because they believe that you can lose your salvation and repent and gain it back. But this says that it's impossible. Impossible. In First John, First uh, John ten twenty eight twenty nine says that I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now, I've had some Armenians tell me, he didn't say that you couldn't jump out of his hand. Okay? But when someone walks away, I think 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, is very clear about who they are. It says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. It might become plain that they all were not of us. Is that clear? If you walk away, then there never was that true, genuine faith. So a person who drifts along in sin and makes no effort to be holy, and then he, there's this renouncing of his faith, they never were believers, I believe. Second view. This is a view that these were genuine Christians confronted with a hypothetical warning. And the mindset here, and, and, and there are some strong uh, scholars who, who, who believe this, academics who believe this, they believe that they're placed here, these are warnings that are hypothetical. What if? And we can't lose our salvation, but what if? If we could. <laughs> and it's placed in the Bible to warn us. And then third is a description describes individuals who have shown signs of profession of faith, but who are not true believers. They, they appear to be believers. Their lifestyle looks like that they're saved. They've been exposed to God's Word and to the, the Gospel. Initially, they show excitement. But later on, they abandon their faith, their profession, even becoming opponents of Jesus Christ. And th this is the view that I, that I hold to. And I want to just give you three reasons why I feel this way. The first is the falling away of these um, people, um, those who have been enlightened. And, and it, this sounds so strong, it could describe Christians um, enlightened, um, shared in things of God, tasted. These parallel the experience of Israel in the wilderness. If you remember the nation of Israel, they saw God work through the blood on the post. Their eldest was not killed. And yet all of Egypt's firstborn was. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They observed the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. 
They tasted the waters of Marah when there were none, until God provided. They ate manna daily. They heard the voice of God at Sinai, but their hearts were hardened in unbelief, and they fell away. And I believe that, that some in the desert who died in the wilderness were regenerate. I believe that there were some who were believers, but there were some who were not. The thing is, is they were both visible members of the covenant community. They were there. They were amongst them. They had gone through their catechism, so to speak. They were accepted into the community. They experienced the spiritual realities, but fell away. Beyond the parallel there with Israel, uh, I think about the parable of the four soils. If you remember the Christ's teaching that, that there are people who begin to look very much like believers. There are four soils. One, some of the seeds fell on a path, and it was so hard that birds came along and, and, uh, and ate it. And that's for Satan, as it is later on described. And there are those who fell on rocky soil, and these are the ones who seem to have great life, like excitement, and then they died away. There are those with the among the thorns and thistles, and the, it kind of represents those who seem to come to Christ, but the problems of life kind of crowd them out, and they they don't walk with God. It's very short-lived. And of course, the fourth one is the the soil that that was fruitful and produced. So we see here in the this these four different soils that there are some who seem to be believers. They, they get excited. And then they walk away. They abandon their faith. The third reason why I believe this is the right way to interpret it is it agrees with the doctrine of, of, pers- of perseverance of the saints throughout God's Word. And we always interpret these difficult passages by what does God's Word say overall? We can't go to one place in God's Word and say, okay, this verse here decides a doctrine. We just can't. And throughout God's Word, Scripture asserts that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ. That's... Amen. Scripture declares that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8. And scripture declares over and over that God's purposes will be accomplished. I, I, I go back to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 1, and before the foundations of the world, it says that he knew us. He called us. He sealed us for his Holy Spirit. He predestined us. We see God working in the midst of our lives. Scripture also declares that believers are kept by the power of God. And Jude says that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless. Ephesians 4, 30 declares that we are sealed. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until redemption. And over and over throughout 
the word, it says that when we come to life in Christ Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ, that we have eternal life. Now, if I have eternal life, do I lose it? What is eternal life? I believe very strongly that overall that God's word says that those who truly come to Christ are secure. And they will persevere to the end. But this warning is very real. It's very real. It's not for a truly regenerated person, a born-again person. It's a, it's a caution for those among the body of Christ, among Christians who are there and who have not come to Christ. They appear to have come to Christ, but they haven't. Finally, final question. Should we apply this warning to our lives as believers? We're justified by the blood of Christ. We're reconciled. We're dwelt by the Spirit of God. Do we apply this? I think we need to be very careful to not mute the voice of God in our lives. This is a terrible warning. When I look at those who fell away, they're described these descriptions. We look at them as well. They could very well be based on these words are very ambiguous and very general. And you can look at them sometimes. You can say that that describes a believer. The neat thing is, I look at this passage. If you look at verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and then after this passage in 9 through 12, he, he identifies with them. And he even calls them beloved in verse 9, I believe it is. But when he begins in de- to do this warning, he uses the third person. He says, those who have fallen away. Those who have been enlightened. Let's look at these four or five ways that these people are described. It says that they've been enlightened. The word enlightened could easily be used for a believer. But we believe also that someone can sit in church in a Bible study and they can hear the Word of God taught and preached. They can gain insight. You and I know people who have gone through classes They've been trained, they've been admitted into the, the church, but they're not saved. Second thing, they have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God can be at work in someone's life, convicting them. I, I remember so very well in my own life, the Spirit of God convicted me of sin. And I wasn't a believer. The Spirit of God draws us to him. It's only because he draws us to him that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. People can sit under the influence of their mom and dad, Sunday school teachers, preachers, and they can say it's good. It's good. And finally, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. I'm reminded of what Jesus Christ said in Matthew. He says that they, there are people who cast out demons and they prophesy. 
and they do mighty works in Jesus' name, and yet Christ will tell them, I never knew you. And they come to him saying, Lord, Lord. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people who were falling away appeared to be believers. They're impacted by the gospel. They're impacted by the Spirit of God and by the church. We see in verses 9 through 12, uh, after this terrible warning, scary warning, we seem encouraging. We see some warmth here. Verse 9 through 12, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Boy, he'd hit them hard. He warned them. Then he says, he changes his terms from who in third person, and he says, we. <laughs> we. And beloved. He wrote to a group of people in whom he, in these last verses, gives assurance that they're saved. He calls them beloved. He, he talks about their good works, illustrating their faith. He, he mentions their inner life, that their love for God. The love you have shown for his name in serving the saints. He has confidence that his readers are, are, are not going to, to make a shipwreck of their life, of their faith. They're not going to commit apostasy and fall away. They're going to persevere. But... But he's not omniscient. The writer of Hebrews is a man. Even though he's inspired by God, he's not omniscient. And so he's giving them that warning. But he encourages those who are in Christ. He knows that only God can know and see their hearts. And it's because of that that he wrote that strong warning. It's a warning that we all should keep in the back of our minds. It's written for those who appear to be believers, who are not. And throughout Scripture, again, God assures us that his purposes will be accomplished. He, if he began a good work in us, he will complete it. And that we are kept by the power of God. And that he will, will keep us from stumbling and present us blameless. He's given us eternal life. As I started this passage, I couldn't help but think of my own life. You see, I, I told you guys how I would go to church on my own. And um, I would, I joined the church. I was baptized. I prayed prayers. But I didn't know Christ. I didn't know him. There was a tenderness toward him. I could have clearly given the gospel. I believed the Bible was the word of God. I saw the differences in the lives of people around me. 
my life had the appearance of being a believer until college. And even in college, when there are people who were harsh and derogatory about Christians, I, I, I stood for them. I was in the church. I was a church member. I was baptized. I sought to live according to the Bible, but was not a believer. And this warning was written for people like me who appear to be saved, but are not. Is there someone here this morning who comes to church, possibly or even a member, who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would take your word, Father, that you would cause us, Father, to, to look at it and to apply it to our lives. Father, we know that you can give us, you give us assurance for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, your spirit so well can convict us, can encourage us, can assure us of our salvation. But Father, we think also those who may not know Christ, who are here in church week after week, and we pray for them that they would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Was the worship team leads us to send a song? Is the prayer counselors would come forward? Be prayed for you.